So for me, it's more like counseling, pastoral ministry, counseling, pastoral ministry. I've had one foot in both. And, and so <clears throat> I got my MDiv then. So I had a master's in counseling, then went for my MDiv. And then um, was presented an opportunity to get my PhD in counselor education and supervision. So I could teach counselors at the graduate level. Um, so based on my, my background, it seemed like a very good fit to me. Welcome to Contentious Talks, a weekly podcast where we talk to influencers, celebrities, politicians, and everyday people to show that we all have unique opinions, and that's a good thing. I'm your host, Ryan Malinowski, and today we're talking to John King. Hey. How you doing, John? Not bad. Got my sweet tea going. So sweet we're, tea. Nice. We're good. We're good. It's my guilty pleasure. Well, thanks so. for being on the podcast. Thanks for bringing sweet tea. I'm, I'm glad to. You can't have it, though. Well, it's I my... didn't want it. <laughs> We can't, yes, nobody can share anything anymore, right? Uh, yeah, apparently not. So, <laughs> well, we're sharing a ride together, so that's okay. That's true. Yes. That's true. Yes, we are. Um, who are you? Well, that's Where, a good question. Where did you come from? Well, I have lots of titles. Yeah. Um, uh, follower of Christ, okay. husband, father of nine, nine. children. It's always changing. Yeah, it's always changing. I'm looking for my tenth. Okay. Uh, no, I I, uh, I will add a son-in-law to that, cool. and I have two daughters-in-law, wonderful daughters-in-law, and I have a son-in-law that that will uh, that will happen in early September. Cool. So September 2020. Congratulations. And thank you. Thank you. Um, so some people call me Doctor King when I'm a professor. Mm-hmm. Some co- people call me Pastor John when I'm a pastor. Okay. And um, <laughs> my two boys for Father's Day got me a, uh, a title of Lord, so I can, I can officially, legally be called <laughs> the go. Reverend Doctor Lord John King. No, I, so I'm I'm a um, I'm a uh, faculty member, full time faculty member with Liberty University. Okay. I teach graduate counseling online, so it's a awesome. wonderful, wonderful thing. Lots of people all over the country. Um, come to Liberty University. It's a really large, large university, 120,000 students total, most of whom are online, believe it or not. So, um, 120,000 yeah. now, huh? That's yeah. Incredible. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And so I'm also, I've been a pastor for 25 years and over the last 17, those have been at all in all at one place at uh, Mechanicsburg Brethren Christ Church. Awesome, awesome. So, yes, is, is Central Pennsylvania where you grew up? Is this uh, your your original o- OG no. stomping grounds? That, that was not the case. Uh, I grew up in Northern Indiana in okay. in the in the middle of cornfields in a very small town called Mentone, Indiana. Okay. Um, Three gas stations, two bars. The nearest traffic light was ten miles away. Okay. Okay. That kind of small town. Awesome. I went to a, a consolidated high school called Tippecanoe Valley High oh, School. Yeah. I, I know them. You do? No. No, I'm thinking <laughs> not. Like nobody knows about Valley except oh, yeah. only old, people that go there. Right? Old Tippecanoe. <laughs> yeah, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. That was the river. Yes. Okay. There you go. Uh-huh. 
Um, yeah, and then I went to Bluffton College, now Bluffton University, whoop-de-doo, in Ohio, Northwest Ohio, and uh, met this cute little Mennonite girl named Cindy, and um, we hung out for four years, and then figured it'd be worth, uh, well, what we used to say is um, we, we realized that with Cindy's ability to work with children and my ability to deal, deal with crazy people, we could raise our families. So that's what there we do. Yeah. Um, so we originally settled in uh, Souderton, Lansdale, Pennsylvania area. Okay. We were there for about 13 years. Eight of those years, I was a pastor, either part-time or full-time, at a, at a small, smaller Mennonite church. And then we made the transition here to Mechanicsburg in 2003 with four children. I think 8642 at the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah, something like that. And then uh, we added a fifth child, and then we adopted one, then we adopted another, and a third, and a fourth. So, gotcha. Yeah. Cool. So, you know, outside of Indiana mm -hmm. and uh, outside of some parts of Ohio, and obviously here in central Pennsylvania, yes. most people probably think Mennonite uh, Amish. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? Um, I'm not sure if you want to. Thinking of that at all? Yeah, bit, yeah, I could, I could sure do that. So, um, the Mennonite Church actually is an offshoot of the Anabaptist movement. So, there were a group of, of people that split from the Catholic Church that were called Lutherans, and people that split from the Lutheran Church, um, some a splinter group. Um, they were called the Anabaptists because they had the the audacity to think that you know what. Maybe um, the place where you lived and the nation you lived in doesn't have to determine whether you're in the kingdom of God or not. Okay. And um, they began to recognize and, and ask questions like, what is the kingdom of God and who is the kingdom of God? Okay. And they began to, to realize that, um, you know, the true church doesn't, isn't defined by national boundaries. We could probably use a little bit of that lesson these days. Sure. Um, so kind of, kind of like the Reformation in the sense that they were pushing back against the Catholic Church. Yeah, it was a Reformation. Reformation. It was a Reformation of the Reformation, okay. really. Gotcha. And and they began to rec look at the. Here's the audacity. They they had the audacity to think this. Like, um, so when ch when children were born in Europe in Spain they were baptized Catholic. Okay. And in Germany, they were baptized Lutheran. Gotcha. And in France, they were, they just killed each other for over those, those things for 200 years. But, but they began, they began to, in a, in a active sedition against the state in a, in a house in, uh, I believe it was Switzerland. Uh, they know the exact house. Um, Interesting. there was a group, there were a group of people meeting, under like, yeah, under like they would, they were going to be persecuted if they were found out. But one person said to the others, baptize me. <gasps> what? You've already been, no, no, baptize me. The true baptism of repentance and faith in Christ. And so he was baptized and they all baptized each other. Soon after those people were rounded up and many of them were executed for the audacity to baptize themselves rather than to be a baptized citizen of that nation. Interesting. 
So the Anabaptists were heavily persecuted over a century, I think a couple centuries, okay. if, I, if I got that historically accurate. There's a book called Martyr's Mirror, okay. Martyr's Mirrors, um, where they be, like, the the Anabaptist Mennonites, um, they were named after a man named Menno Simons. When they, when they immigrated to the U.S., many of those Mennonites settled in just north of Philadelphia, where Cindy and I lived. Okay. Uh, they, they moved out west to um, maybe an area called Lancaster County. Maybe you heard of that. Most people have. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so there were, you know, in the Mennonite church, there are some splinter groups. So the, the ones that are most obvious are, you know, if you go to Lancaster County, you'll see people that dress very plainly sure. and all that. And more like what people expect when they think of Amish. And yeah. More so, similar to. Right, right. Yeah. So Amish and Mennonite. So there's old order, Am, uh, old order Amish, mm-hmm. uh, old order Mennonite that would, you know, very similar forms of dress, although there's some distinctions between those two groups. Well, and didn't they, um, they, they have close ties to one another. Don't oh, yeah. They? They, 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 yeah. They, like I have... Um, I keep telling the people, I, I haven't done the genealogy work, but my great, 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 great grandfather was the first Amish preacher in the U S. So like, so I, I had to go back and look at the genealogy of that, but I have any, anyone in Lancaster County that has the last name King, I'm probably an eighth or 10th or 12th cousin of like, so that, so I have that background, but those Mennonite groups, And Amish groups moved farther west where there was farmland. Sure. Um, and the, the idea about that was to be the quiet in the land. I've heard I heard that drilled into me as I was a kid and as a young adult. Um, the Mennonites were known as the quiet in the land because they they made the decision. One of the distinctions of pe- being in the Anabaptist tradition is that many people um, believe Jesus when he said in Matthew five. Um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so the very simple people who were Anabaptists said, how can we, how can we love our enemies if we kill them in war? Right. And so they believe that literally. Right. And, and many people still do. There's nuances for all that. I mean, 9-11 happened and, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. But, um. It's interesting. I didn't know the Anabaptist movement broke from kind of where the Reformation led. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because they wouldn't have been able to read those verses and ask those questions had it not been for the Reformation. Yeah, right? exactly, so. right? So they had the audacity to read the Bible and do what it said, right, you know, right. in the best attempt. Here's another thing. Um, were there any baptisms of infants in the New Testament? None that I know of. Right. Yeah. And so these people said, why, why are they baptized when they, they don't, they don't, they're not consenting right. to this. Sure. So that's when when the first people were baptized, they were baptized as adult believers or after an age of consent. You know, sure. like, do you, do you really understand what you're doing? You know, not when you're six days old or six months old. You don't, right. You're not making an act of volition. Right. So that's really, so the, the idea of believers' baptism, they were one of the first groups to do that in many centuries in the history of the church. Okay. And, you know, out of that, they were rounded up and, and 
killed and martyred. Sure. And some of them have some of the stories of these people that were killed and martyred. I mean, they're they're my they're my forefathers and foremothers. Right. Like they they were, you know, they're heroes to me right. in my faith. So I mean, stories of people singing hymns, quoting scripture as they're being burned alive at the stake by people from the established church in Europe. And then the Brethren in Christ denomination kind of came yeah. from the Mennonite denomination, correct? Yes. And so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but the the Brethren in Christ were originally known as the River Brethren. Okay. And the river being the Susquehanna River, which kind of divided Lancaster County from uh, York County, I believe, right. in, in that area. So there were a group of Mennonites who really felt like there wasn't a um, there wasn't a real strong faith in Christ element going on, and so they they started meeting with a group of um, oh man, I'm 51 years old, losing my memory. Um, uh, pietists, that's right, and and they began meeting together, and then they began baptisms, and so that's kind of the River Brethren group. Okay. began that way. And I can't remember exactly when they became called the Brethren in Christ, but it comes from a passage, I think in Corinthians somewhere, in the King James Version. Okay. To all the Brethren in Christ. Like, whatever. Cool. So, yeah. So, so really, the Brethren in Christ is um, four or five, four strains. Uh, Anabaptist, Pietist, and then when the Wesleyan Holiness Movement swept in the U.S. and there's a new Methodist church in every small town. Mm-hmm. Like that group was influ- influenced by the, the, the brethren of Christ were influenced by the, by the United Methodists, gotcha. but remain separate. And then the evangelical movement of recent, you know, there's groups oh. that, yeah. So, so it's not evangelical, although there's evangelical elements. flavors right. and elements to it. So I can, when somebody says, are you an evangelical? I, Hopefully the good parts of it, I am, yes. <laughs> but but the, It means so many things. Right, it means so many things, and so I don't use that right. term to describe sure. myself. So. Well, the, the, the Brethren in Christ denomination is a pretty young denomination in terms of things. Correct? Agreed, yeah. Like, yeah. Not even, a, is it 100 years old or something? Yeah, I'd say probably about 150. Okay, yeah. I'm, yeah, so I, I think in the 1870s, okay. that's when the, and it wasn't necessarily a split, that I'm, I, I, there wasn't like bad blood between right. the Mennonite Church and the right. Brethren in Christ. They're cousins, right. you know. Well, and you they're part of, of the same family. You kind of brought it up. One of the big things, from my understanding, and you can mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, um, is the the Anabaptist movement is very much rooted in pacifism. Yes, very correct. much so. Okay. Yeah, and th- and that would be, you know, it, it can really be summed up in what I said before. You know, Jesus says, you, you've heard that it said, um, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right. And, and so what does it mean to be a, a people set apart that the world can take note and say these people were Jesus? And that Jesus transforms them, transforms their life. 
so that they become they become more like Jesus. One of the, one of the classic arguments for biblical pacifism is Jesus. What it, what would Jesus do? Would he take up arms against his enemies? No, he would love them, and he would say, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing." And that's that's hard. It's yeah. hard. It's a, it, it's not an, it's not a it's not a ticky tack teaching. Right. That when you think about the implications of that, if I'm not willing to take up arms against my enemy, everything I have in this nation, in this country, comes from war. Like not everything, but you know, <laughs> like our economy has been fueled by war. You could say that about every country, though. Right, right. exactly. So, I mean, right. That, that, I mean, so what does it mean to be a, per, a people set apart sure. to love God and love our neighbor as ourself? It's not easy. No. It's tough. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a pacifist in most situations, yeah. but not in all situations. Uh, I And I can and respect I, that for know, sure. Right, and, and we've know. had, you know, in the past yeah. that we've had conversations like this before, I think, too. Um, I know I've had it with multiple people, but... Sure. Generally speaking, probably ninety percent of the time, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah. You know, um, now that I'm a married man, you know, when it comes to the family, so I think it's a responsibility to show yeah. to show, you know, our, you know, your Christian faith by kind of turning the other cheek and you know, yeah. not not to being abused or something like that, right? right. But, but in the sense that we have the choice to walk away from a situation most absolutely, but absolutely from the. What, where I struggle with pacifism is when the hypothetical scenario of, you know, somebody is breaking into my home to harm my family. Of or course. Something like that. that and that's a great classical uh, or classic argument. Right. Um, right. And, and, and so I, I am a biblical pacifist. Yeah. I recognize we live in a fallen world. And, and if somebody asked me that question, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I pray that I'll never have to. Right. And that's you know? what I say too. Unfortunately, I've been in situations where I didn't have an option but mm-hmm. to defend myself. Yeah. Would you kill uh, someone? I would. Yeah. And I and if I had the opportunity to subdue someone rather than kill them, I would. Yeah. You know? And my risk with that falls outside of, you know, yeah. things that I think we can say what's right and wrong. Yeah. Like biblically, it, it would become an extra biblical type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and actually, exactly. I do take some ideas from like the military and stuff like that, uh-huh. and police and whatnot. Thinking like, yeah, but I don't. It, how do I know that I truly subdued that person that was trying to harm me? Yeah. You know? um, uh, and again, I don't think this is a hill to die on either. I don't think that. Like, thank you. So uh, so okay. So here here's <laughs> let me let me speak about your, that one. Your your difference, and actually, this is the point of the yeah, podcast, yeah. right? Your difference in opinion from mine makes no difference to how I live, you know? And if we disagree, yeah. I, you know, I think we can still have a conversation and that's kind of the point of Sean. And you and I can major on the majors and minor on the minors. Sure. There's this one, um, there, there's like three concentric circles. I don't know if people can see this on the podcast or not, but three concentric circles. There's big circle, medium sized circle and small circle. And I, I was in seminary and learned this. It makes so much sense. So there are absolutes of scripture that this is a small circle. Sure. You know, Jesus is the only way, and he is the only way. And it's very clear from Scripture that Jesus is the only way. Okay. That's an absolute of Scripture. Um, the virgin birth is an absolute of Scripture. I mean, Scripture is clear on that, for example. Then there are um, ideas called uh, convictions. 
And those are those are things that godly Christian people may differ on. Is it okay as a Christian to socially drink? I think it is. Some people would disagree with that. No, I'm not, I, I can yeah. like, and it's probably 50-50 down the middle. Well, it depends on even what flavor of like. Maybe in the South, in the Southern Baptist Church, it might be a little bit less, and right. like in the Northeast, it might be a little bit more. Like so, whatever. Um, I would say uh, a peace position would be a godly held conviction that that godly Christian people di- differ on. It's not an absolute. It's not an absolute of Scripture. There can be, there are there are solid arguments on both sides of that issue. I'm not familiar with it. I mean, a peace position. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, what just what we've been talking about for a long oh, okay. time, like you know the the position on peace and non-resistance. That's gotcha. the that's the phrase gotcha. that okay. many Anabaptist people I'm use. Gotcha. Yeah. And then there are preferences like, what color is the carpet? Do we sing worship songs or hymns? Right. The the kind of stuff that churches split over. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, and I agree with that. I. Uh, me and my personal life, I've boiled it down to a handful of things. That, yep. You know, if you believe those things, we can have the conversation. I leave the rest up to God to let yeah. him bring yeah. you to what's important when it's important. So. Yeah, and the big, the big important thing is that we, that we, like for for my life, that I follow Jesus. I do what he does, or I I do what he did. I did I I follow his example in my life in my. My goal in life is to become more and more like Christ. Right. So, well, and I think from a, more of a, you know, if you take uh, Christianity and theology out of it, one thing that I've always encouraged people to do is to live as consistently as they can to their worldview. You know, yeah. if they if they believe something or they want to live in a way that they believe, maybe they don't believe it yet, but they think it's right and mm-hmm. true, and it mm-hmm. doesn't. Uh, play out in their actions. I've always encouraged people to allow it to play out in your actions. The convictions thing is one of the big things that took me a while to learn that, you know, it doesn't matter if someone's con- uh, someone else's convictions are different from mine. It yeah. really doesn't play into <clears throat> my day-to-day life yeah. and whatnot. Do you, know, uh, do you know what you call when somebody's, when, when somebody thinks that their convictions needs to be absolute? Uh, I would call that maybe. fundamentalism. Okay. <laughs> You know, I'm like I'm sure there's a yeah, lot. Like I, I, that's my my turn for it anyway. Yeah, and but but making all of the absolute or making a number of absolutes that are pretty clear from Scripture into convictions. Like, here's an example: we're pretty sure that Jesus is the only way. There could be other ways. Um, that would that's a, a a term I would use would be theologically liberal. Sure. sure. So there has to be a good balance. I, uh, what's most important in all of that. So, Bringing up fundamentalism, I think outwardly fundamentalism, if you're forcing someone into that using your definition, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a bad thing. I think inwardly and within your own, maybe even family, I would say, being, being a fundamentalist is not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that it's a conversation, right? It's not yeah. a, a dictate or something like that. Yeah. I've, I've counseled people who've had uh, dictatorial fundamentalist parents, and sure. it didn't go out well for them. Sure. You know, because when they, when they got to be of age, boy, they, they certainly went the de- uh, an opposite direction than their parents would have loved them to go. Right. And even themselves. And now they have to find a way to crawl back. And well, and even, even if they, 
well, whatever. You can apply this to whatever worldview you hold. Yeah. It, even if they have that, then, you know, I can't... It, it, it's probably tough to interact with people who don't believe what you believe if you have that type of upbringing and background. Yeah. Um, Seminary helped me yeah. with this. Um, I was the only Anabaptist in my cohort of seminarians okay. <laughs> going, to, going for our MDiv. Um, but it was, it was such a wonderful breath of fresh air to see people from all many, many different uh, denominational affiliations and uh, racial back, background as well. Yeah. Um, it really looked to me like heaven. Yeah, that's cool. You know, so that there were Hispanic and African-American and white and city and suburb. And, right. you know, like it was, yeah, very, very, very wonderful experience for me. So let's shift gears a second yes. here. I want to talk about your family because you don't have just 10 kids. You have 10 kids in kind of unique ways. Yeah, you're nine. Nine. Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm speaking the 10th <laughs> Okay. Life, you so. want to be my 10th child, Ryan? I can arrange that. I mean, no. <laughs> There's no benefit anymore. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. want to go to college. Yeah, okay. Like That's that, good. So. I can arrange that. Or like any more college. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if I were going to more college yeah, and I wanted you to know. go to Liberty, then maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no. No. Cool. So, yeah, talk to me about your kids. Talk to me about your family. Yeah. How uh, how that has shaped up because it, it's unique. It's unique, especially in America. It's unique. Yeah. I mean, nine kids is unique in America, but also the way you've gotten yeah. your nine kids is unique in America as yeah. well. I feel. Too. Yes, it is. So when I was dating my wife, my girlfriend, soon to be wife, in college, she gave me a book called Twenty One Steps Up the Mountain. I think it was called that. It's out of print now. <laughs> I, but it was this couple that adopted it twenty. Doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter then, right? It doesn't matter. Nobody can go buy. It. Nobody can go buy it. Don't buy it. I'll tell you. I'll tell you whole, what the whole thing of the book was in like ten seconds. This couple adopted twenty one special needs children, oh, wow. and Cindy said, "Wouldn't it be great if we did that?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> no. Why would I do that?" I was full. She was of still your girlfriend at the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So you I, had a way out. Yeah, I, I was. Well, maybe we were. Yeah, maybe it was fiance. Okay. Um, but still, there's still yeah, there's still there. a way out, and she still stayed with me. Um, <laughs> and I was full of myself at the time. I still am at times. So, um, interestingly enough, my first job that I could find mm -hmm. in an area of my major. Out of, fresh out of college, four months after I graduated, I was a foster care social worker for medically fragile foster children in Philadelphia, Center City, that? Philadelphia. And um, the very first day, this three-month-old baby that was four pounds and so many ounces was placed with this huge woman. <laughs> and she put a pink frilly dress on her and stuck a bottle in her mouth. Uh-huh for a week and this child gained a pound. Oh, wow. Um, and, and during that season, my wife and I um, decided that we were going to help out an adoption agency with, uh, like in, in 18 months, we had 25 babies uh, come and live with us in like a very temporary foster care situation before they were placed in adoptive homes. Okay. Uh, that first child, by the way, her name was Fahima. Um, when she was 18 months old, she passed away from SIDS, and I was her social worker. And I just saw, like, 
God at work in these foster parents that were caring for these children that were not from them. I learned a lot. Learned a lot. So, um, we began having children. And uh, 95, our oldest son was born, Andrew. Um, then 18 months later, Jesse came. Oh, excuse me, 19, 19 and a half months later, Jesse came. And then 19 and a half months later, Mariana came. And then Isaac didn't come until <laughs> a couple of years later. So, um, yeah, so, so we, we had four children. And then we moved uh, to Mechanicsburg. I was going to say, in I, Isaac, Isaac was very young. He was a he was a teeny baby. Yep, and uh, so he he came um, he came later. Uh, well, uh, another our fifth child, Eden, came in two thousand four. A year later, so uh, you know the old saying, "New place, new face." That was Eden. Um, and then um, so after your you know, so in, in 04 she came and and then cindy got the got the bug for a sixth child and i'm like oh my gosh Whew. well how about foster care so um we were approved as foster parents on june 1st 2006 and five days later june 6 2006 6606 uh, we get a phone call my wife got a phone call from a social worker saying, there's a five day old newborn baby being released from the NICU today at Harrisburg Hospital. We're only gonna place her with uh, a home that's willing to adopt her. Will you take her? And my wife said, yes. And then she called me. <laughs> um, so no, this no, knowing Cindy, that's yeah. the only way it could we, happen, we, so. we were prepared. I mean, we, we had, I mean, I wasn't ready to adopt personally, sure. but I was open to, you know, what God would do in our lives and all of that. So, um, my daughter hope changed my life in so many ways. Um, we ended up adopting her at age at 20 months of age, 20, 20, 22 months of age. And, um, God changed my heart. And everybody, she's 14 now. She's a runner. She braids hair. She might, in in a few years, if you hang around, uh, she might be one of the only people that, that does cornrows on the West Shore for a job. So she's wonderful. <laughs> Just such a blessing. Um, then a few years later, um, we brought a, a 10-year-old boy into our home named Sean. And he had been born in Kenya. Um, and so we finally legally adopted him like a week before his 18th birthday. Um, okay. and Sean is a sophomore at Liberty university now, um, and doing, doing pretty well. You know, he's, he's, uh, he loves his friends and he hangs out and you know, he, he's got a lot, he's a very social butterfly. So that's great. Um, is there a reason you waited? so long to adopt him? Was it's a long legal story. Okay. Um, Can you simplify? <laughs> uh, let's just say simplifying. Um, there were some immigration issues. Okay. Gotcha. And some information that we received when we brought him into our home that we, we didn't think we could adopt him. Okay. So, 
Yeah, it's a long story. He has some biological sisters in this region, and and we have a Kenyan family because of that, which okay. is wonderful. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, then uh, a few years later, in thirteen, we uh, we received word about a one-week-old baby that was born at 25 weeks gestation, one pound, 13 ounces. And the long story really short, there's hopefully will be a book about this someday. Um, my wife and I adopted a little boy named Victor. We named him Victor, Victor Noah. And he, we had custody of him for 13, for 11 weeks he was in the NICU a total of 13 weeks in Utah. And so I had seven, we had seven children. I stayed home with, in large part of the time with seven children. And my wife, Cindy was with Victor for those, the better part of those 11 weeks. I graduated with my PhD during that week, that first week. My oldest son graduated from high school and spoke at graduation. I spoke at graduation. It was, it was the summer of all summers, 2013. I don't want to do it again, but it's one of those things you tell your grandkids about. Sure. Uh, yeah. So Victor is now seven in second grade. He is legally blind. Uh, we're homeschooling him this year, but he generally goes to public school and ha- is learning Braille. And <laughs> he has some special needs, but it doesn't it doesn't slow him down at all. So uh, yeah, he's quite a quite a child. And then um, we we brought um, a young lady named Mary into our home uh, when she was 15 and we adopted her when she was 17 out of the foster care system. Gotcha. And so yeah. So right. she's living on her own and um, Sean and my son Isaac are now sophomores. They're going to college in a couple weeks. And then my daughter, Mariana, is getting married in September. <clears throat> my son, Jesse, is is married, and he and his wife are teachers in the area. Okay. And then my oldest son, Andrew, um, and his wife, Sarah, live in Kentucky. Andrew works for the Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, in Kentucky. Cool. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, there's there's always changes in our, our home life, like, yeah. every month. Well, or more, yeah. With twenty-one kids, isn't that what you yeah, said? Yeah, something you're, like you're that. Shooting for? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's <laughs> what my wife is shooting for. No, we're we're blessed. We're no, very that's, blessed. That's awesome. So, yeah. um, very cool. Very cool. It's a complicated life. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It sounds that way. It sounds like that's the way you'd it's have a, it. It's though. a good and fulfilling life. Yeah. 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 Cool. There's um, joys and sorrows with it all, but so, so what led you to counseling? Hmm. Uh, I I became very fascinated as an undergrad with psychology, and um, I seemed to be the person that people would come to and talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just felt like it fit well with me. Um, I started off like after I graduated from college. And began work as a social worker. I had a, I had a desire to get into counseling, and I started a master's program then okay. in counseling while I was still working. And then um, 
so yeah, once I finished that degree, um, I began working as a therapist at a local mental health facility and um, got a clear call for pastoral ministry. That's a whole, that's an hour long conversation, but, but the, the short of it is, um, it was one of those times where I, <laughs> my, my senior pastor at the time, his name is Lowell. He said, John, if you can do anything in this world other than be a pastor, you better do it. But if you can't be, if you can't do anything in this world except be a pastor, then you better be a pastor. And I think that conversation really sealed it for me. And so I actually served in the church where my wife and I first began our married life together, her home church. And I served there for eight years. So what was the question? I missed it. Oh, counselor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so for me, it's more like counseling, pastoral ministry, counseling, pastoral ministry. I had, I've had one foot in both. And, and so <clears throat> I got my MDiv then. So I had a master's in counseling then went for my MDiv and then um, was presented an opportunity to get my PhD in counselor education and supervision. So I could teach counselors at the graduate level. Um, so based on my, my background, it seemed like a very good fit to me. So that I got that degree in 13 and then in 2018 began full time at Liberty teaching counseling like January 1, 2018. Do you have something to say? Then consider being on the show. Go to contentioustalks.com slash guest and apply today. That's contentioustalks.com slash guest to apply. Now back to the show. Up next, John, is everybody's favorite segment. It's called the Tough 12. It's 12 questions, three different categories. Uh, Bring it. Categories are... (laughs) politics, philosophy, and then the last category is personal religion. Okay. Each category has four questions. Gotcha. Okay. So we're going to start with politics. Great. First question here under politics is what is a fair society? Hmm. Um, a fair society is equal opportunity, not equal outcome, not necessarily equal outcome. So equal opportunity. Um, my my wife and I, when my, when our kids tell us, "Dad, that's not fair," we're like, "What? What? Like, we we think fair is giving every child what they need when they need it." So as a parent, it's like that's what fairness is. So. One of our children might be ready to drive when they're 16th on their 16th birthday, although it's like 16 and a half now, whatever. And and another child, it might need to be 17 or 18. Right. We might need to see, you know, what's fair, you know. But they, but each of them have an equal opportunity. You know, like for our kids, we want them all to have an education if they want it. We hope they want it. So, and and so in society. I would say, I would probably agree with uh, Ben Shapiro when he says um, equal opportunity, not necessarily equal outcome. Gotcha. Yeah. There you go. Next question here is, what do you feel is the number one issue we'll say face in America? Okay. Um, 
number one issue is we don't really listen to one another. That's the number one issue. And because of that, I see it happen all the time with people that are more left-leaning. They tend to look at, at the world in a very emotional way and don't really try to listen to what the other side is trying to communicate with them. And then on the right, I think there's a, sometimes, oftentimes, there's a lack of compassion and trying to, trying to understand who the other person is. And um, it's easy to put, well, on both sides, then it's easy to, if I can categorize somebody and make them less than human, then I'm in, I'm, I'm in good shape there. I can win every argument because they're stupid. You know, they're a Trump supporter or they like AOC. Like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Somebody likes AOC, you know? So if, but if, but if people aren't willing to listen, that's the number one issue right now. I don't think there's a close second right now. No one's listening. Got it. I but we are. You're listening. Yep. I agree. That's why I'm here. Uh, awesome. Do politics matter and why? <clears throat> it's kind of two questions. Kind of snuck it. 13. Maybe, maybe a better way to answer, ask the question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much does politics matter? Okay. We can answer that one. Yeah, maybe a 5. Five. Four. Five. Why four or it five? Should, well, <laughs> funny you should ask. <laughs> um, uh, you know, as a Christian, I, I'm a kingdom of God guy. I want to see God's, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think when people start worshiping, if they, if they, if they, start looking to politics more than they look to God, they're going to miss it, man. They're going to miss it. They're going to miss it. They're going to start worshiping other people and other ideas rather than worshiping God. And ultimately, that's a that's going to be a big problem. And we're, we're seeing it. We're seeing yeah. it. People are, are worshiping, worshiping their side. Yeah. Fair enough? Fair enough. So what what role should the government play? Mm. Well, okay. So I am I'm politically conservative. I do think the government should help those who can't help themselves. So like my son who's blind. We we didn't have to adopt him. He could have been a ward of the state because that's where he would have been. He'd be in foster care right now. You know, costing the government hundreds and hundreds, you know, hundreds of dollars a day for care. Um, so I think there is a, a role that government can play in helping those who can't help themselves. Um, and to giving people a hand up and not a hand out. Um, I know people, I'm friends with people who are caught in the life cycle of not being able to step and help themselves. That's sad because it's a, it's a trap. Um, so what, what, what role should the government play? Um, well, I can just ask the question, 
Um, you know, our government has not been perfect. There have been times when their government has oppressed people. I'm, I'm trying to listen more around that issue. But, but by and large, our country has become a very... The, the number one helping country in the world because of certain freedoms that they've had from the government so that they can, uh, you know, have, have more freedom to live and do business and help others. And so I am, I'm very much in favor of limited government, but there's a balance in that, right? So there's, you know, we're driving on roads here. I'm really glad that the government is making roads. Sure. That makes I'm, sense. I'm glad for free public education, but free public education is not free. I pay school taxes sure. because I'm a property owner. I get that. You know, so it, there has to be a balance in it, though. I'm, I'm afraid we're becoming more unbalanced than we should be. So on some of the social issues, mm-hmm. um, like I get the infrastructure stuff and yeah. uh, I've struggled in the past with the government helping people type of thing Yeah. Um, because I'd rather see, me personally, I'd rather see me help people. Like I, I'd rather see the church step up and, and, that's and what do was, what they're told to do. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, the, the church in this country, I mean, how, how would you the feel? Gr- how would you feel? Let me rephrase. So it's not my opinion coming yeah. out, right? right I don't right. want to lead you. I want to know your opinion. How how would you say the how would you say you feel the church does in helping people in general overall in America? Yeah. Better than we did twenty five years ago when I first right. became a pastor. Fair enough. Better, not nearly where we could. I think the church, hundred and twenty five years ago, uh, in its history, and I I can't tell you who and how. But I, but I know that back in that day, there was a split between um, the more theologically liberal church in America and the more Pentecostal movement in America. The Pentecostal movement was more focused on biblical truth, and the more theologically liberal movement was focused on God's justice and, and for the poor and the disenfranchised. And during that split, the government came in and started many government programs okay. and they had to because there were people in need. Well, they didn't have to, but the church allowed that to happen because they didn't step up and do their job. Gotcha. And so for my wife and myself, like we're committed to doing justice and helping people who are in need. Um, I'm the executive director of at the cross recovery. It's a recovery ministry connected to our church and another church. My wife and daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, um, almost 16-year-old daughter, Eden, a few years ago, started a ministry, a nonprofit organization called uh, Our Father's Hope. And one of the things they do is they collect backpacks for every foster children in five counties. When they, the day they go into care, they like we we want to be about doing those kinds of that that kind of work for people and. and I know there are churches in this area, for example, that are are um, stepping up to be an answer for the orphan care problem in this community, in this county. Um, I know our church has stepped up to help people who are caught in the sex sex industry and helping them come out of that. Um, yeah, and my, my question so, wasn't an indictment. It was yeah, just, you're right. Yeah, 
I mean, so from from my perspective, mm-hmm. you know, ideally, the church, the synagogues, the uh, the the mosques, the the faithful mm-hmm. people among us who yep. believe that we should help, like all all three faiths, all three major faiths believe that we should help those who are in need. Yeah, you know, um, agree. I I just feel like there's plenty of people professing to be in those faiths with not taking doesn't take as much money as people think it takes to do stuff like that it just Uh, takes time it takes time it takes effort it's hard and so for me that'd be my ideal world right where where it wasn't a clear and blatant like hypocritical thing where everybody was being helped by the church and maybe there was a plan at some point in time for the uh the faithful among us to kind of take that back over from the government Mm -hmm. and a partnership there with the government as well um but I also recognize that the faithful among us had failed at one point in time. I didn't know when or where, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I knew that we were doing it at some point, yep. and then we stopped doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and because of that, that I do realize now that there are people who need help. Um, I wouldn't have said that probably five years ago. I would have said, "Oh man, that's my tax dollars going to the wrong place." Right. You know? Right. Right. Um, but I, I get I get that now, and it took me a while. And yeah. you also knew. You knew me as a younger person. Empathy was never one of my strong suits. <laughs> You've uh, come a long way, my friend. No, that's good. So that's something I've tried to work on. It's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> but ideally, I would love to see it back in the hands of the faithful. Um, yeah. or not even the hands of the faithful. I, I, I hate to ostracize someone who wants to take up that thing, but in the hands of people who are willing to do it. Because it's much more efficient if, if church organizations and relief organizations right. and and nonprofits do that kind of work rather than government. Well, most of the time too, I think there's a, the, one of the biggest reasons for that is because there's a personal aspect to it. But whenever you have the government involved, um, there's, there's an impersonal aspect to it. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, because, because they're, 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 most of the time the government's just throwing money at a problem and, and trying yes. to get it done. And uh, they're not efficient in their, in the use of their money. And, and I would say, like, I would much rather see organizations do that than unions. Now, I'm not against unions, necessarily. Gotcha. But, you know, I, I, think, I think nonprofits and those kinds of organizations are more efficient with their money because they have to be because they don't have enough money. Right. So, right. yeah. But it's not easy. I mean, these are... These are really complicated issues for sure for sure for sure and that i mean that's what these questions were meant to yeah, inspire right. so right. um all right so that was politics we're moving on to philosophy mm-hmm. john first question in philosophy what is truth i'm going to change the question okay I, I knew that I knew there'd be some squirrely business with you on, uh, uh, on well, the podcast. It's a good question. It's a good question because Pilate, Pontius Pilate, in the Gospels, asked that question: "What okay. is truth?" Did he have an answer? He asked Jesus, "What okay. is truth?" And what he didn't know, and he did, he had no understanding of, is he was looking at truth. So the question is, who is truth? Okay. And that is Jesus. He himself said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So I think truth is embodied in Christ, in the person of Jesus. 
And so based on that, that changes everything for me. So Make sense? To me it does, but I'm just thinking yeah. about people who've never experience that or maybe experience yep. like maybe have heard that before and thought mm-hmm. you know that doesn't make sense um or coming from a different perspective so so truth you... truth is not truth is not just this thing that i think in my brain it's a way that i live i live the truth of the good news of jesus because he is the truth and so i identify with him and so um I don't know if I'm making sense here, but but truth isn't just this these three these three um, or four or five ideas in my head. It's not it's not a cognitive thing for me. Okay, so it's a way I live my life. You're saying that the truth for you, rooted in Jesus Christ, is is more than just. Um, is more than just uh, like verifiable types of facts that you can kind of put out there. There's a deeper meaning to, yeah. it's part of it, but there's a deeper yeah. meaning to the things that are truthful to you. Because that, of yeah, the, that's a very modernistic way of looking at it that are propositional truths. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that there's, there's no nothing necessarily wrong with thinking about propositional truth. Um, it's fine. But, but when people think that that's the only way to look at truth, I think they're mistaken. Well, it's very westernized. Very much so, yeah. To look at truth yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, great. What, uh, what do you believe about people's ability to change? <laughs> so because I believe Jesus is the truth, and he is also the way, and he's the way to change. You probably wouldn't be a counselor if you thought people Absolutely. couldn't change. I would <laughs> chuck it. But but here's the thing. Time. <laughs> if I just felt like my 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 little bag of tricks as a counselor is all I have, then I'm missing the boat big time. Because I believe that I could counsel somebody for 30 years, but one touch from God, from Jesus in their life, changes everything. And I've seen it happen dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the past 25 years I've lived as a pastor. I mean, he could take some young buck like you and transform your life, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've seen it happen. Well, I also love working with people who are struggling to overcome addiction. And the families that are struggling to overcome addiction. I've seen a lot of marriages that have been rescued and, sha- and saved. I was going to say shaved. Rescued and saved and transformed because of... Christ in them, and Christ's body called the church to help them walk through hard times. That's what the church is really supposed to be. So, it's a it's a partnership with God, His His Spirit, the the truths of Jesus, but also the church as it should be operating. And I'm I've been privileged over a number of years to see that happen where I'm seeing it happen. I mean, when we're done, I'm going to have a, going to walk into a meeting of some guys that are struggling in their marriages and, and God's doing some really good work in all three of them. And they're supporting one another now. It's really cool. It's great. Yeah. Yeah.
Next question here, John. Mm-hmm. How do you explain consciousness? Mm. Being fully present in the moment. Um, now, what I just said there might sound a bit Eastern, like Eastern mysticism. Sure. And I don't think that part of Eastern religion is wrong. Being fully present in the moment, Jesus himself said, um, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink. Um, and then he says, um, you know, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So consciousness, like I'm fully present right in the moment. Um, I'm not, I'm not experiencing anxiety about the future or depression about the past. I am fully present right now with you, Ryan, with me. Cause you're okay. I don't care what other people say about you. No, that's exactly what other people say. About <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much pretty much the baseline there. Yeah, yeah, there Everybody's like, "Oh, Ryan, yeah, he's okay." Yeah. Um, what exactly makes you you? That was another question. Mm. Right into it. So. Yeah. Well. Yeah. My my relationship with Christ makes me me. Makes me the best version of myself that I can be. Because otherwise, I'd be. Selfish and prideful. Ask my wife about that one. Yeah. I think all wives say that. Yeah, you know. At least our wives. <laughs> our wives would definitely uh-huh. say that. I love Cindy very much. <laughs> Obviously, it sounds like, too, your family and your marriage and whatnot is part of what makes you you as well. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like just through listening to you talk and obviously... Mm-hmm. The question spurred thoughts about your family as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's there sounds like you would probably agree that there's different levels of mm. um, of what 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 are the building blocks of who you are. Yeah, it, well, it comes in the roles that I play in the world. You know, I, the way I introduced myself earlier: um, husband, father, or follower of Jesus, husband, father. Um, Professor, pastor, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and and here's the other thing: we can't be we we cannot be somebody on our own. What I mean by that is, what's the very first thing that God's you know God created the world? He said it's good, right? very first thing in Genesis 1, 2, 2, that he said that is not good, it's not good that the man is alone. So we are relational beings. God himself is relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so, you know, what makes me me? Um, the relationship and relationships that I have. So I'm not just my own person. That's a very Western way of looking at the world. Um, and I think it's not helpful for a lot of people. So, which okay. enables people to change. Like, you know, like if, if I need to change, I can't change on my own. I need help and support of people around me, my community, to help that happen. Yeah. I don't know if I fully agree with that. 
I think it depends on the change. I, I think well, I think that it's helpful. I would agree that it's yeah. helpful. Um, I do agree that you need an external uh, true and lasting change. Yes. In order for yeah, in order for that mm-hmm. to happen, I do believe there needs to be an external yeah. help. Um, but I've seen personally in in my walk of faith, I've seen great change um, at times with no help except for what I would say the Holy Spirit's help in my life. A relationship, so, right? Right, exactly. And that's what I mean by that, too. Okay, fair So we, we, we agree. We do agree, yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. That's philosophy. Cool. <laughs> now we get into the part that you should be really good at. Uh, I don't know. Religion. <laughs> You're a pastor, right? Well, that doesn't mean, you know, okay. <laughs> Bring it on. So I call this section the personal or religion okay. uh, section because it has to do with very personal things that mm-hmm. I imagine a lot of people don't talk about. Sure. Um, and also it made it really nice. The t- tough 12 topics all started with me. <clears throat> oh, good. Uh, anyway. Nice. Okay. They do. I'm looking at that. They okay. do. Politics, philosophy, and personal slash religion. Uh, what do you believe about God? We've actually talked quite a bit about this, but if you want to how can it. Yeah. How can everything that we, every verb that we use, every sentence that we speak is based on time. Okay. Present, past, future, sure. based on time, right? Absolutely, I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, and at the very least, it's frozen in a moment in time. As soon, yeah. as, soon as it sure. gets out and the hearer hears it, if you want mm-hmm. to take a scientific yeah, approach yeah. to it, then that the question you're is way old. too philosophical <laughs> for me, man. But no, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I would agree with that, though. Yeah. So here's the question: language is rooted yeah. around time, is what you're saying. All of our language, yeah, yeah language is rooted around time. So how can you describe someone who is outside of time with language that is rooted in time? I don't know. I can't. So the question, you know, what do I believe about God? He's outside of time. He has, he knows everything about me. And you and everything and everyone. Um, And then beyond that, he looks at his creation and loves. How can you use words to describe infinite love? How can, I mean, songwriters try to do that all the time. And some of them are better than others, right? But, yeah, someday I'll see that. Someday I'll understand more. But, um, yeah, for me, that's, I can't even describe God. I mean, I can, you know, I I preach and teach about God, right? Um, And and scripture tells me more about who God is. But, but your question, what do I believe about God? He loves me. He's, he loves me enough to send his son to die in my place where I deserve death. Um, I'm, I, he, gave, he gave me the right to be, to be adopted. To be an adopted child. That's why my adoptions are so meaningful to me. So Awesome. Yeah. What do you think happens after death, John? I don't 
know. <laughs> Apart from what we read in scripture. <laughs> I know when Jesus... Um, there's not a lot about it in scripture. There's not a lot. I do know it's in Revelation, there's going to be no more sickness or pain or death or mourning. Right. And I also know that Jesus said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Okay. In my father's house are many rooms. Mm. He also said to the thief on the cross, one of the thieves on the cross, he said, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. Here we go. Here's the video part of this. How can you even... That's um, no more sickness or death or pain. Yeah. Um, I think that when Paul wrote about um, someone who had kind of an out-of-body experience in 1 Corinthians 12... I think the first part of First Corinthians twelve. Look it up. It's, it's you know, like, like he he saw inexpressible things. He heard inexpressible things. Um. Yeah. I I am not an expert, and I have a feeling that everybody that thinks they're an expert that that they are an expert about heaven, um, doesn't know as much, nearly as much, about heaven as the poor widow who lived her whole life as a poor widow and just died and met Jesus for the first time. She has a better view of what heaven is like than all of the experts in this world. So, yeah. I'll go with that. What gives life its Hmm. meaning? Um, It's a book called Experiencing God. And the whole idea... Blackaby? Henry Blackaby. Blackaby? Black, Blackaby. Blackaby. Yeah, that's Blackaby. B-L-A-C-K-A-B-Y. I highly recommend the book. They made me read it in seminary, but it was actually a transformative book for me. Um, he said, find out where God is moving and join him there. That's the price of admission for that book. Find out where God is moving and join him there. It was... It was an incredible read for that particular reason. So, um, when I find out where God is moving and join him there, that gives life meaning for me. Awesome. Well, last question, John. You made it through the tough 12, as long as you can answer this question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last question under the last category of the tough 12 is what is love? You mean who is love? Well, I mean, the question is, what is love? You mean, who is love? You can yeah. change my question. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'll change it again. I mean, yeah, great question. <laughs> but but the premise, I think, needs to be rooted in a person again because of my faith in Christ. Um, you know, the, the, the most famous Bible verse of all, a lot of people have heard of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then I like the passage, the, the verse right after that. God did not send his son to condemn the world, 
but to save the world through him. Um, so love is sacrificial. Love is a choice. You know, if I follow, if I follow what Jesus did, like a good Anabaptist, I'll do what he, I'll do what he did. I'll, I'll, I'll do what he says. I'll do what he commands and I'll follow his example. And, um, there's lots of examples we can read about Jesus and how he loved throughout scripture. Um, Here's another thing that I, I've said to people. I said this. This is a theme at Liberty on our faculty this past year. It came from a guy named Paul Miller um, who loved who, who wrote a book called Love Walked Among Us. And um, he was teaching a Sunday school class. I was, I was the youth pastor for his kids. And he was a writer for Nav Press and some other places. Wrote some wonderful Christian books. And he said... Um, he looked at how Jesus loved people, and every time, it's almost like Jesus, where it says throughout the Bible, various places, Jesus looked at him and loved him, and then said, one thing you lack, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he, when he saw the woman who had lost her only son and she herself was a widow, his heart went out to her. And the principle is that you need to look before you can love. And I like that philosophy. That was a philosophy that was kind of our philosophy as a faculty this past year that I, I submitted to them. Like It was like, yeah, this, that's, that's, a, that's a good theme for us. We need to look before you can love. We need to look at people really look at people. <laughs> Boy, our world could use that these days. Is there an election coming up or something? And just something try to like understand that. and try to see people for who they really are. This actually might come out after the election. Oh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> it might be just before the election. <laughs> Good luck! No, <laughs> but but really, it is it is really important that we need to look before we can love. And so, you know, I work with married couples and engaged couples too. Love is a choice. Yeah. It's a choice every day. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, That's all I got, for, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, before we go, how can, uh, how can people find out more about you? Oh, well, I'm on Facebook, John A. King. Um, a is an Allen. My mom named me John Allen. Um, and yeah, I don't really have a personal website, so you know I can be, you know, Facebook is a good place to do that. Um, right on. Yeah, I do other things. You know, I'm, I'm again a full-time faculty member with Liberty University, and uh, I can also be found on our church's website, mcbic m c b i c dot org as in Mechanicsburg Brethren in Christ Church. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, that's all. Thanks again. Appreciate you. You too. You too. Next week on Contentious Talks. 
Take a look at where, where you're at right now, where you're, where you're working. Take a look at the most senior employee that works in your company. What, not what do they look like physically, like how do they behave? Do they look beaten, you know, or do they look like they're, you know, oh wow, this is, this is a rewarding career. Chances are if they don't look too enthused, that's you in 20 years. Part of the whole sales process is you have what I want in some way, shape, or form. So if I'm going to give you my hard-earned money that I just busted my behind for this week, you need to you need to embody what you preach. You know, so if you're if you're certified but you don't you don't embody what you preach and you just try to compensate with an an, an overload of knowledge, um, that's only gonna get you so far and you'll that person will never be as successful as the one that has the knowledge, the people skills, and looks the part. You always have to think about, especially as a business owner, you have to think about everything. So if I were to if I were to, you know, really blast that and be like, you know, I'm all about this, some people would see it as, yes, you're you're about BLM and I'm all about it, it makes sense. Um, you know, justice for George. Other people would see it as, oh man, you're you're just out here starting riots and I don't do anything, you know. So I don't. That's why I chose to remain neutral. Um, so it's really sad the state of affairs because um, it's just devolved into the whole um, uh, the defund police thing, and it's just I I don't know. I've turned off the news for a while. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Contentious Talks. Did you like this episode? If so, consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. To get notified about new episodes, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to connect more, like Contentious Talks on Facebook. To support Contentious Talks and for more content, consider joining the Contentious Collective for as little as $1 a month. To do so, visit ContentiousTalks.com today. Contentious Talks is produced, hosted, filmed, and edited by Ryan Malinowski. Contentious Talks, copyright 2021, all rights reserved.